turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1. On Sunday mornings, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we've been watching Paul go through his missionary journeys, and this just seems like a logical place where we could stop for a moment and see what Paul wrote to one of the churches later on that, that he was going to speak to. So before I get started, let's, I'm just going to pray, and then, and then we'll get into it. So Lord, we thank you so much for this evening, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunities to open it together, and um, Lord, just for what you show us in your word. And I just pray, God, that you speak through me, just um, challenge our hearts this evening, Lord, as we look at your word, and um, Lord, we want you to be glorified through this, and yeah, Lord, we just thank you so much that we could be here together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so um, since we're flipping over to Philippians, uh, one of the things I wanted to kind of give us a little bit of background, so I'm going to probably take a few minutes and we're just going to talk about the book of Philippians because I don't know if you're like me, but my mind kind of wanders a little bit. I remember the stories of Acts, but I don't always remember where those stories take place in what cities and so how the church at Philippi came to be. So um, this was written, so Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi in AD 61. He's in house arrest in Rome. And so this is a, we're going to get to this at the end of the book of Acts. He goes into Rome um, and he's in prison. And he's, right now he's waiting to, to go before Caesar at uh, about AD 61. So the occasion for this book that Paul's writing, he's writing to the Philippians. It, it's not like a lot of other books where there was some issue in the church and, and Paul was addressing that issue. For the most part, the church is functioning well as a church. You know, they, they seem to be uh, going along pretty well, except there's, a, there's an issue between a few ladies that we learn about in chapter 4. We're not going to get there. You guys can study that after I get done. But, you know, so for the most part, they're doing good. He was just looking to encourage them. The recipients are the church in Philippi. So we learn about this in the first few verses when you start looking at uh, Philippians chapter 1. But it's written to a church in a Roman province, and the province is called Macedonia, which southern Europe type area, Greece. Um, so there's a city in Macedonia called Philippi. So that's when you see him going to Macedonia. Philippi was a city there, and this city was one that was on like a, a route where people, a lot of people would go through it on their way to Rome. So a lot of traffic going through the city. Um, and it started on Paul's second missionary journey, which was about AD 50-51. So this, is, this book is written about 10 years later. So we've got a 10-year gap. The church has been moving and growing during all that. And the church, uh, it's the first church in Europe. And I feel like it's kind of started in a unique way. Although when the church was blossoming and moving out initially, all kinds of crazy things were happening and, and churches were being formed in strange ways. But I feel it was kind of uh, unique because in Acts 16, Paul's in Troas and he sees a vision. And this is how he ends up getting to Philippi. He sees a vision of a man that's asking him to come to Macedonia. And so he comes along and they go. And so we have Paul and Silas and Timothy, he grabs Timothy, and a lot of people believe Luke was with him because Luke starts saying, we, 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 when they get to there. Um, that sounded a little funny, but <clears throat> that sounded like the little piggy that tried to go home, but sorry, that was not meant to be. But the, uh, so those, so if you're reading in Acts and you get to Acts 16, he starts talking about we, and, and they start moving. So we think 
Luke goes along with him to Philippi. So typically, Paul would go, when he would go to a city, he would go straight to the synagogue. That was his move. He would go, he would interact with the Jews first, not to offend them, and then he would end up going to the Greeks. Well, he gets there, there's no synagogue, which means that most likely Philippi didn't have a synagogue uh, because there weren't 10 Jewish men, which was kind of like the... Um, the baseline that there had to be 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue in a particular city. So we don't believe there was a synagogue there, but the religious people were all going down and meeting at a river. And Paul goes down to the river on the Sabbath, and he, that's where he meets Lydia, who you may remember, she's a seller of purple. She comes to the Lord, her family comes to the Lord, they all get baptized. So we have this woman who's kind of well off, she ends up hearing the gospel, and she comes to the Lord. Um, then, so... That all happens. Lydia gets saved. She takes them to her house. And then for the next few days, he's going around the city and he's talking. And this is where we have the slave girl who's a fortune teller following them around. And she's saying stuff like, she's, she's saying, these people are proclaiming salvation. These are servants of the Most High and they're pro proclaiming salvation to us. And that goes on for days. So Paul lets us go on for several days, but for, you know, I don't know what finally led him to cast out this demon, but you could almost imagine. This would have been a little bit confusing for a Gentile group of people because the Gentiles believing in many gods, and then they have this person following around saying, hey, this is the, the most holy God. and we're, So he ends up casting out this demon that was in, inside of her, and it was a... Um, so you, I don't think the spirit... You know, Could you imagine trying to give a message to people when you've got someone over here yelling the whole time that you're doing this? So that's probably what finally led Paul to go... Um, this is getting knocked out. Well, when that happens, that leads to all kinds of trouble for Paul and Silas. The, the people who are a master, they end up taking, her, taking them, they court them down into like the main area there. They strip them down. They say these men are doing things that Romans shouldn't be doing. You know, they're teaching us uh, all kinds of crazy things that we shouldn't be caught, that are not lawful for Romans to do. So they strip them, they beat them in front of everybody, and they throw them in prison. So Paul's in prison. Paul and Silas are both in prison, and they're whining and complaining. No, they're not whining and complaining. <clears throat> See if you're still paying attention. They're, they're actually singing and praising. And one of the interesting things when you're reading Acts is he says that not only are they singing and praising, but the prisoners hear them. So the prisoners hear them, and also the guard hears them. So that night, so they're in there. They're singing and praising the Lord that night. Um, earthquake happens. These are all things happening in Philippi to start this church. So the earthquake happens, all the chains fall off, the doors all open, and um, no one goes anywhere but the Roman soldier. He's going to kill himself because he was the guard. And he, if you were at that time, if you were guarding a prisoner, the prisoner got away, you would have to take their punishment. So he was going to commit suicide because he thought that was better than working with the Roman authorities and getting himself killed. So Paul says, no one's gone, which was amazing to me because you had all these other prisoners who I'm assuming came to Christ because if I was a prisoner, I would have left. I didn't care what Paul was doing. I would have taken off, right? So none of them leave. Paul's there. So then the jailer comes over and he comes over and he comes to Christ. He takes them home, cleans them all up, takes, it says he cleaned up all their wounds, takes them to his house. His house hears the gospel and they come to Christ. So we have this whole thing Paul's just there, just doing his thing, proclaiming the Lord and proclaiming what needs to be done. 
he's getting beaten, thrown all these places, and we see just random people from all different types of society coming to the Lord. So that's what ends up happening. It keeps moving forward. So that's like the central part of the church that's now grown in Philippi, and he's only been there. We don't know the time frame, but he's been there just a little bit of time. And, um, and so the next morning, the magistrates say, hey, send those guys out. And Paul says... Um, you beat us publicly. We we're Romans. You weren't allowed to do that. And so the, it scared the magistrates, and they beg them and say, hey, can you just get out of here? We don't want any part of this. And so Paul, he calms himself down, and he says, yeah, I think he kind of threatened them a little bit just to protect the church that's going to be moving forward there. And don't make this mistake again with these Christians type thing. Uh, that's, that's a Mike-ism. So I don't, but uh, anyway, so that goes on. He goes back to Lydia's house, gets his crew together, Paul and Silas leave, and they head out. So that's the beginning of the church in A.D. 50. They have these people. It's believed that Timothy, uh, Timothy stayed there and Luke stayed there in Philippi at the, beginning of the, at the beginning of the church. So that's the start of the church. Paul, on his third missionary journey, he makes his way back through uh, Philippi again. So he sees them in this 10-year time frame. He's gone through there again. So long history, but that's how the church got together. I always struggle with that. So now we know these people who comprise the beginning of this church. The main theme, a lot of people talk about uh, Philippians is the, uh, the book of joy. He's talking about joy during persecution, which is, which is true. He does talk about joy a whole lot. Um, great deal, you know, through suffering, having joy, uh, rejoicing in all circumstances. He's talking about those things. But along with that, You'll see something continuously through this book where Paul's saying, uh, be of one mind. You know, being of one mind, united in Christ, it, it's truly amazing. So we're going to pick up verse 1. That was just a couple minutes to get us through, get us to the church. So we're Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts out with just a standard greeting that, that to, uh, to these people. And I'm not going to get into the whole life of Paul. I hope we understand that, who Paul was. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was saved in a, a miraculous way on the road to Damascus. But God sent him to the Gentiles. And that's how these missionary journeys started happening, because God had sent him out. So that's one of the reasons why the church at Philippi was able to hear the message. Timothy, he says Timothy is here. Timothy would be his scribe, and uh, Timothy had been with him on that second missionary journey, like I said. But then I think the important thing is what he says next. He's, he then identifies their lives as bond servants of Jesus Christ. And this word is doulos, and if you look in the Old Testament, this was what a slave, how a slave who loved his master and was willing to give up his own rights, give up his own life, and serve this person, just getting rid of his own will... Um, this wasn't forced labor. This is what Paul was saying. I'm turning my life over. I'm a bondservant. I'll do whatever my master says. That's what he's saying. And I think, you know, this, that kind of language prepares you for the rest of the book. Being known as a bondservant, and then he's going to talk about all these things. Everything lies in the context of being totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. And that's what we see. And he's writing to the saints in Philippi. And he says, including bishops. So those would have been those in leadership roles, and deacons, those in service roles. So different, a little bit different there. And, but these are all the Christians in the church. That's who he's writing it to. He's not writing it to any particular person, but to everybody in the church. Then every believer 
in the Bible is called a saint. So he's calling them saints. We're saints. We're holy ones, set apart unto God. That's what the life of a believer is, set apart unto God. And we see that all through this book, the way Paul talks about himself being set apart unto the Lord. And um, so the whole congregation needs to hear it. And what do they need to hear? He starts out with his standard greeting, grace and peace, which were two words from different origins. One was Greek, charis, and the Jews was peace, he said, and that's shalom. So he's saying these two, and those two only come through, from the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. So he's, he's lining it all up, everything that he's saying to them. So verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you, all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So he's beginning with a acknowledgement, his acknowledging his thanks to God every time he thinks about these saints. So the Philippian church had been extremely giving towards Paul. There were times in Paul's ministry where they were the only church that gave any money to him and helped him out. And he says, <clears throat> he's speaking of this fellowship in the gospel. Because when we think about fellowship, we can be friendly, we can, be, we can come into this place and we can be friendly with people, but to have fellowship with somebody, you have to have something in common. And their fellowship was in the gospel. They, Jesus Christ, and that's what those who are in Christ in this room, we have a fellowship in the gospel together. And that's what he's talking about here. Several times, they were the only church and that gave money to him. And let's face it, where we put our money a lot of times is the things we care about in life, you know, where we're putting that. And so if, you've, if you're feeling like a ministry that God has laid on your heart to give to, you know, you should give to those things. We feel like the Holy Spirit's, we down here, you can go to the corner down here in the fellowship hall. We have a board of people that we, the church believes in their ministry, gives money to their ministry. And um, so you ever want to take a look at those, but the reason we give to those and, and the reason why something like this would have blessed Paul is that, you know, a lot of people can't go to them. We, you know, we, we're helping people in Indonesia. Well, not everybody here is going to be able to go back into Indonesia and help reach, get the gospel out to people. But we believe in the ministry. We believe God is working and that everyone will eventually hear the gospel. And so we're, we want to put our money in those locations. And when we give to those locations, I mean, I've talked to these missionaries. What a blessing it is when you give because you're fellowshipping in the gospel with those people. You're, you're coming alongside them. We think it's, oh, I'm just going to give a few bucks. But the encouragement that comes along with something like that when we give to missionaries is astounding. So it, not just physically being there but and not just financially giving, but praying for these people. We, we'll see here that the prayers of the, of the saints that were going up from Philippi were one of the things that Paul is looking at and saying, you know, it's really helped him. And so he's overflowing in thankfulness. And it, for, the, for him, it led to joy in his prayer life. Every time he'd think about it, just praying and thinking about these people, they did nothing but bring joy to his life. And I don't know about you, but Paul's life, we talk about it, you know, and we just say, oh, Paul was beaten, Paul was thrown in prison. This is very foreign to me. Like, I'm not being beaten for my faith. I'm not being thrown in prison. And so, you know, we kind of like, we see these things, and we see Paul talking about joy and he's been beaten, and he's been thrown in prison, and I realize he's in Rome. He's not necessarily beaten at this point, but he is chained to somebody <laughs> during this time, and he's in prison, and I'm thinking, how can he have joy in the midst of all of that 
And because his joy was not, for, I mean, from a human perspective, all the things that he was doing, you know, thinking just building the church in Philippi, you know, you, 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 all you did was you uh, helped somebody down at the river, you cast out a demon for somebody, you, you know, then you get thrown in prison and you're getting beaten. And you say, from a human perspective, oh my goodness, this is what's happening. It's all out of control. Why don't I just stop all this? And yet Paul had joy because um, his joy wasn't based on his circumstances. And, and that's what we have to think about. His joy was founded in walking in the will of the Lord. Whatever that looked like for him, he was going to walk in the will of the Lord. And so <clears throat> verse 6, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So we quote this all the time, right? Paul is letting them know some attribute about God, that God is faithful. When he begins a work in you, you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have turned your life over to him. He's beginning a work. It's not dependent upon us anymore. We've now surrendered our will to his. Not dependent upon us. He's going to complete that work that he begins. So we can rest in that. And um, I think a lot of times as a believer, we can get frustrated. We can get frustrated in, in our walk. Like, why am I not moving along? Why is it not happening? Or we can get frustrated with people in the church. Like, why, why aren't those people moving along in their walk? Why aren't they growing in Christ? And there's a lot of reasons for that kind of thing. But one thing I was in my devotional time um, two weeks ago, it's just thinking about our shepherd over the sheep. You know, sometimes in my mind I have, um, I think in my mind I've set, like, you know, you hear about, well, he's the good shepherd over all the sheep. And so I put him up almost like I think of a big warehouse and we're all down there, all the sheep just bumping into each other and he's saying, and he's the warehouse manager and he's just watching all the sheep and he's taking care of the sheep. And like, yeah, if you wander off, he's going to bring you back type thing. And I'm going, but actually the shepherd is caring for the sheep, each one of us individually. So I'm having struggles and the shepherd is caring for me and the person you're struggling with in the church He's caring for that person the exact same way he's caring for you. Like the, the shepherd loves his sheep, and that's what we're seeing that, you know, this frustration that might come, we have to realize that we've got this good shepherd that cares for us. He knows what he's doing, and in that taking care of us, he may bring, he may bring something along to bring us back in line. A lot of that happens in life. But, you know, he's also there to comfort and bring us along and care for us in the midst of hardship. So... Uh, it's, in, it's encouraging to know that I'm not in control of that, that I can, that he is actively working in all circumstances to complete what he's doing in my life. And so this allows me to live with confidence. That should allow us all to live with confidence, just trusting in that the Lord has a plan and he's working all things together for us. So it takes away doubt. It takes away uncertainty. It takes away fear because God, it's not about us. It's about God being faithful. So once our lives are surrendered to God, uh, we can have confidence to let the Lord lead us. So verse 7, he says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have in my heart, <clears throat> inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. They were partakers of the grace that God was showing towards Paul because they were standing with him through the trials. And 
Whether Paul was in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, he and they were partaking in the grace of God. And I don't want us to take that lightly. How cool is it that in God's economy, praying, giving financially, allows God to pour out his grace in situations. And when I'm talking about grace, it's God's supernatural power and provision that he exerts is holy influence upon our souls, upon people. You know, turning them to Christ, keeping them in Christ, strengthening them in Christ, and growing us in Christ's likeness. I mean, that's, that's what God's doing with his grace. And we all, and here in the context of what's going on to the Philippian church is that God was pouring out his grace to empower them to stand firm in the face of persecution that was coming his way. So Paul emphasizes that, and he's also emphasizing how much he loves them. He even calls God to account. Even God could confirm how deeply Paul cared for them. His love was based on the affection that comes from being saved by Jesus Christ. Um, so when I see something like that, I say, how does the gospel transform our ability to love others in the church? Like, how does that even happen? Because, like, what's going on? I've seen it. I've seen people being transformed to suddenly love people. So turn over to Galatians 5 real quick. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So a couple books forward of that. Galatians 5. Paul talks a little bit to the Galatians about it. And in the context of Galatians, um, th there was some controversy between Jews and Gentiles. They're, they're struggling. But who's got liberty? Who's doing, who's able to do things and who can't do things? And whether I should do this or not. So he's talking about liberty. Who has liberty to do whatever? So Galatians 5, 13, it says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Okay, so we've got flesh, but we say... There's a contrast there, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one, in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, that's not good, beware lest you be consumed by one another. If you walk, yeah, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So he's making a contrast there between the biting, the Tearing each other down, that's walking in the flesh, and the fact that if you walk in the Spirit, you're going to be loving one another, like the Bible calls us to. So, the Spirit is the key to us walking in love towards one another. So, the Spirit coming along. All right. So, then we go down to Galatians 5.22. You don't have to go that far. Just scan down the page. 5.22. It says, but, for, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So the first thing he points out there is spirit, fruit of the spirit is love. So there's this link between being loved by Christ and our love for others, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But how does the Holy Spirit, so how does the Holy Spirit take over our more and more of our lives so that the fruit of the spirit grows in us? Like that would be crucial to us being able to love one another. And that is through faith. So we get that. So we continue to trust the promises of God and the spirit takes more and more of our life. So we're trusting the Lord and our faith grows by hearing the word. So it's all in a line. So we, we, we grow in faith, we grow and the spirit dwells in our hearts and we begin to love those around us. That's what's happening. And so Paul's saying, so faith is the, is the work of Christ and his redemptive act. We have that faith. So we grow in love in the love of Christ, 
and have this affection that Paul's talking about by studying the Word, putting our faith in Christ. That's, what, that's what's going to happen in our lives. And the Spirit's going to take over. And then this fruit's going to result. It's just an amazing way that God has set things up so that, we can, so that we can grow in love for one another. And so Paul is saying that his love and affection for them was born out of this fellowship that he has in Jesus Christ. He knows that that's where it's come from, and that's where the love that we have for one another is coming from, is when we have trusted in Jesus Christ and the Spirit dwells in us. So it's not self-generated. I'm not going to suddenly figure out a way to suddenly love this jerk around me. I've, I'm going to love this person by seeking out God's face, you know, studying the Word, praying, and seeking God's face, and the love of God will flow through me. So he says in verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So Paul's praying for them. He knows this love that's in him, and he wants this love to abound in them, but he wants it to abound in knowledge and, dis- and discernment. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So he wants it to happen in their lives. He wants them to be that way as well. So this love was being grown by the work of the Spirit, and Paul wants it to abound in knowledge and discernment. So what does that even mean? What, do we, what, is, what does he mean by that? Well, Proper love is not going to is not going to be able to discern rightly without truth. That, that's one of the problems we have. We have in our society right now that uh, love is love is the big slogan. Well, that throws out all discernment. That throws out all truth. That says anything goes. And love only can come through it. Proper biblical love doesn't throw out truth. We don't generate our own truth. We look to God's word for truth. So so we see that. And, and we're seeking, we seek it for knowledge. We turn to God's word for knowledge so that we can, we can love and discern. And when society's constantly changing what truth is, really makes love a difficult thing to say, I'm standing on that, but God's word's not changing. So Paul prayed for them that their love would be based in knowledge and discernment. Why? He says in verse 10, that they would approve the things that are excellent and that they would be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. The more excellent way is the way of God. That's what he wants for them. He wants them to love with excellence. And he wanted them to be able to discern those things, and that's where Christ-exalting love is going to abound. If they, if they know the things that are excellent, Christ-exalting love is going to come through that. And he says he wants them, to, wants them to be sincere and without offense. So this is interesting. Uh, Paul uses a word for sincere, which means sun-tested. And so... Uh, the pottery industry was big, in, and what they would do in, in the ancient world is find pottery, you put it in the oven, and it ends up cracking, and it's no good for anything, so they just pitch it. Well, what you know, some dishonest dealers would do, they'd take wax, and they'd put it in the cracks. So they'd fix these pots, they'd put wax in the cracks, and if you held it up to the sun, you could test it, and you could see. If it was painted, you couldn't see it, right? It would be really hard to discern. But they put wax in the cracks, everything looks perfect. And so, but you put it in a, in a window, sun hits it, wax melts, and then you've got a crack pot. So we, we don't want to be crack pots, right? <laughs> so that, that's what Paul's talking about here. He doesn't want them, he wants them, so that word there is meaning, you know, 
Don't let that hypocrisy come into your life. We can't be people. Paul's praying that they would be people without hypocrisy when he's saying he wants them to be sincere. No hypocrisy in your life. You know, we're all going to have flaws. We're all going to be people who've messed up. We've all screwed up. We don't need to hide those things. None of us are perfect. Don't disguise our flaws. Hypocrisy is going to derail our witness if we're, if we're a hypocrite and people catch us in hypocrisy. It's going to derail it if we're, and it's going to kill a fruitful life. So we replace hypocrisy, what does Paul say, with fruits of righteousness that only come through Jesus Christ. And that type of life is going to funnel all praise and glory to God alone. And I love this because I really think that this is something we could pray for everyone in the church. Think about what he said here about them. He, he says he wants this congregation to grow, not hypo, hypocritically. So he's saying, grow my brother. I mean, how, we could pray this. Grow my brother and sister in love that is based on knowledge, that has discernment, that leads them to follow after excellent things, living a sincere life, and may their life be filled with fruits of righteousness so that, God, you receive glory and praise. That's what he's saying for them. How amazing is that? I mean, that's, that's the kind of prayer, that's a pastoral prayer that he's wanting them to become. So amazing. Verse 12, he says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me <clears throat> have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident in my chains and much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul begins to address his imprisonment now. Now he's talking about that. He has encouraging words to these believers so that they don't lose hope. You see, you see some your mentor, you see the one that started the church in prison, like what is, what is going on here? And God's working through Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Um, the gospel is not being hindered by his chains. But this is a means by which God is actually getting the gospel declared in places it had not uh, had access before. And I love Paul's perspective. I just love the way this is written here. Uh, he calls the, the trials, the imprisonment, uh, the things which happened to me. I could see myself. That's not the way I would be viewing it. I'd be saying, all this stuff that's going on, this is the worst thing ever that's happened to me. And he goes, eh, you know these things that have happened to me? I'm sitting here in prison chained to a guy. Um, yeah, the, it's pretty pretty nice. He doesn't really talk about that at all. He just says the things that have happened to me. Paul was focusing on the will of God, even in the midst of his circumstances. So how is God using the circumstances that we're living in to get the gospel into places it's never been before? You know, I, Tim talks about it all the time that, you know, we all work at different places. Um, I, every situation that we probably run into, it's very rare that I don't think I bump into any of you at the grocery store. I don't, you know, it's, we are all different places. And what are the circumstances that we have been going through? What are the trials that we go through? Where's my work location, my home life, to get the gospel into places that God wants it to go? If, if we look at our lives that way, that God has placing me in locations, that's the way Paul was looking at it. I've been placed here. Now I'm placed here so that God can get the gospel here. And we are, I'm placed in Bethel Park. You're placed wherever you're at. Where, how is the gospel getting the, because he put you there so that you can proclaim the goodness of God to the people around you. So if that's the case, if God has placed you where he wants you to be, then we need to pray like uh, Paul did when he reached out to the Ephesus, church in Ephesus, and he said, yeah, ask them to pray to give him boldness. Ask your friends, give me boldness 
could you pray for me that I could have boldness to proclaim the gospel when I go into my workplace or whoever I run into? Just give me that boldness. So Paul's boldness had led to a great furtherance of the gospel, he says in verse 13. Paul says it became clear to the whole palace guard that the whole reason he's in chains is because of Christ. What a testimony. The whole palace guard. So Paul had a captive audience. Every four hours, he had a new guy chained to himself. And so he was able to proclaim the gospel, and the whole palace guard got the word out. I mean, I know a lot of times we go to work and we go, if I say something here, I'm going to get fired, or am I in this situation? I'm gonna... Paul's in prison. How much worse could things get? So he's like just firing it off. God's got me here, and I'm going to proclaim the will of the Lord here. And what that ended up doing was the whole palace guard knew he was in change just because of Jesus Christ. What amazing thing. Um, so, but God had been weaving his plan through Paul's obedience, and now the gospel had made it to the palace guard. Pretty cool. But not only that, look at verse 14. He says, his chains have emboldened most of the brethren in the Lord to grow in confidence. Paul's confidence during imprisonment was transforming the life of others. Um, I mean, just think about, you know, how we deal with circumstances. Hard circumstances impacts the church. Like, when, when we're going through something, how we deal with it is going to impact the people around us. You know, it's going to show where your faith is at, what's going on in your life. Think about how his how his faith in the midst of struggles, in the midst of getting beaten and thrown in prison when the church started in Philippi, transformed, the, transformed Philippi. I mean, that, that's what ended up happening, and the church began. A life that's going to honor God during hardships many times is going to embolden the people in the church uh, to, to live out their faith. Jesus, um, <clears throat> so when I think about that, like being um, bold in the midst of persecution, bold in the midst of hardships, whatever that might be. How does that happen? How do you have unwavering faith when things are coming against you? This America, we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty weak as far as having things come against us and backing down. You know, we, we, we kind of back down to things that we don't need to back down to. But how do we remain strong in the midst of all that, unwavering faith? It all starts with... Um, you know, how do, we, how do we keep that going? Well, preparation is the key. And that's what I was thinking about Jesus when he was in the garden. And, and he's telling the disciples, hey, you need to pray so you don't fall into temptation, so you don't fall back. If we're not waking up every day, we talked about with the kids over VBS, put on the whole armor of God. It's not just something little kids need to worry about. It's all of us. We're going out into a place where we need to put on the armor of God on a daily basis, knowing we're in a battle, knowing that something's coming against us. So if we prepare ourselves, then God says, you know, your, your faith is going to remain strong. Paul was strong because he was trusting in what God was going to do, not in that he was superhuman in any way. So um, Jesus wanted his own disciples who had been around him to pray, so they didn't fall into temptation, right? So when we're equipped and ready to face trials, hardships, and persecution, our faith's going to remain strong. And many times... That's going to encourage the brethren around us and the sisters in Christ. So not only did Paul's chains cause them to shrink, to not shrink back, um, but they came more bold to speak, which is kind of crazy. So they might have been a little bit bold, and now it's even more bold. Praise the Lord for that. Verse 15, he says, some indeed, oh, this is where it gets crazy, but some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, 
Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So Paul's imprisonment led to boldness to, boldness to proclaim the gospel, but the motives of the people were all over the place, right? We, we see that. We see some were preaching out of envy and strife, and others were preaching out of goodwill. And he, he elaborates on what he means. He says the envy and strife camp preach Christ out of selfish ambition. So whatever the situation was, they were thinking, how can this is, I'm going to stick it to Paul a little bit by doing this. And they weren't really concerned about their motives. They were, they were trying to stick it. But when you hear the word selfish, you know you're in a bad place, right? When you're proclaiming Christ and selfishness is coming out. So hoping to add affliction to Paul's chains. This shouldn't be seen in the church. So when we allow coveting what someone else has to take over in our lives, it's going to destroy the blessing of serving the Lord. Um, it destroys joy. Um, it destroys peace. Just think about you know when, when it creeps up in your own heart. I, I know envy creeps up in my heart at times. You see things. We're in a society that is constantly pushing things in our faces that uh, to be envious of other people. And in no way should that be coming up and, and happening. Um, but it, it destroys peace. It destroys relationships that we have with people. It's just insidious. And I, I think... Uh, we see a good bit of that in the American church, among churches. Um, there's a lot of celebrity-focused preachers out there. Um, I, I saw this. One, one commentator said, God can use unscrupulous televangelists, money-grubbing money radio preachers, and sophisticated but unbelieving clergy to communicate his truth. Hey, the work is God's. So God can use all kinds of things to get his word out there. So our joy is going to remain intact if we remember that God is in control and that whatever, wherever Christ is preached, God can advance the gospel. Um, another commentator said, petty messengers do not void a powerful message. So that, that's true. So um, second, he, there's a second group uh, who preach out of goodwill, and they were preaching out of love. Now, one thing that should be clear, those first people, they weren't preaching a false Christ. You know, that wasn't the issue. They weren't preaching a false Christ. They were preaching a real thing. Their motives were just out of whack. But um, the second group, they were coming alongside Paul, understanding his, the mission he was on, truly caring about the message, the people. They were wanting to help further the gospel, just as Paul was. And I, I love Paul's response. <clears throat> he says uh, he didn't care what the heart of the individual was. He was rejoicing that Christ was being preached. They weren't preaching a false Christ. So this is a beautiful perspective. The gospel wasn't about Paul, wasn't about his own fame, wasn't about those envious preachers. It was about Christ and him glorified. And Paul's joy um, could have been zapped by that type of adversity, but he actually rejoiced in it, which is amazing. Uh, John MacArthur said this, one of the surest measures of a Christian's spiritual maturity is what it takes to rob him of his spirit bestowed joy. So if we you know, where are you at? Is your joy getting zapped quickly when things come against you? Look at your heart, you know. Sometimes we lose joy because we have sin in our lives. So it robs our fellowship with the Lord, and that's going to, he's our source of joy. So if we want to be joyful, we've got to deal with sin in our lives. So verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by, whether by life or by death. So there's two things that were filling Paul with confidence that he was going to overcome. Their prayers and the Holy Spirit, which was being supplied to him. 
um, it wasn't so much about deliverance from prison. He, he makes that comment about deliverance, but you know, he was confident that God was working things out uh, in a manner where Christ was going to be magnified, not necessarily where he was going to be saved. Okay? So Paul knew that this, no matter what was going to go on, it's all temporary. Temporary things were going to happen. So the results might be an execution, might be release, but in either way, he was going to be delivered. I mean, he's living out Romans 8.28, uh, you know, where all things work together for good to those who love God, called according to his purpose. Um, so Paul also here, we see that he believes in the power of prayer, which leads me to, are we praying for our spiritual leaders? You know, that should be something that should be on everyone's heart. Are we praying for those around us that are leading us because they need it? They need it. Paul needed the prayers uh, of his people, of the people of the Lord, and so Paul's motivation was, would, would this magnify, would, would Christ be magnified in his body? Um, there's two types of magnification. I even think Tim talked about it on Sunday. I heard it. I was, in, I was down in two and threes. So I think I, I perked up. I heard magnified, but I had it in my notes. So anyway, <clears throat> you know, you've got magnification. You've got a uh, microscope that makes something little look big, and we've got uh, a telescope which makes something big look even bigger and closer. And so we, Paul, and all Christians, we're to be telescopes that bring sinners close to his presence, let them see, magnify. That's how we're going to be magnifying the Lord. So Paul had surrendered his life into the will of the Lord, whether life or death. And I uh, found this uh, James Calvert, maybe some of you know who he is, but he was a Wesleyan missionary. Uh, who went out to Fiji in the 1830s to the cannibals that were there with the message of the gospel. And the captain of the ship in which he traveled sought to dissuade him. He said, you will risk your life and all those with you if you go among such savages. And Calvert replied, we died before we came here, which was really a perspective that I think as believers that, you know, we've got nothing to lose if we stop holding on to a life we can't, we, we no longer own, right? So that's that's what he was talking about. Really amazing. Paul continues in verse 21, which is a, uh, a verse that we know well. <clears throat> it says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So to live for Paul was Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to live is Christ? Well, Christ-centered, Christ-empowered ministry. That's what it was going to be about. His life poured out for Christ and his will. And so, I think the question that we all need to ask ourselves is, you know, what am I living for? What do I live for? What, what would I say to live as Christ? I've been really contemplating this for the past couple of weeks, to live as Christ. What does that look like in every situation that I'm in? What am I pursuing, you know, to live as sports? Or I'll tell you, that fades. I'm 51. That fades quick. So uh, to live as work or entertainment or popularity acceptance by others, you know, all those are going to disappear and they're meaningless when we pass away. It's just it's the way it is. But to live as Christ, that's, that's a different perspective. That's something where we've surrendered everything unto the Lord, and that was Paul's. And he says to die is gain. Paul's perspective on death was completely different. To be in the presence of the one he has poured out his life for is the greatest gain. There's no hope in death for those who are outside of Christ. It's just loss. For the believer who has loved Christ, death is the entrance to gain, which is absolutely amazing. We, you know, death has zero sting. 
the world wants us to believe it has sting. It has no more sting on us. So that's amazing. So we'll see if we can finish out here. So, but if I, verse 22, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul was single-minded in, in what his life was meant to be. He was using any remaining time to bear fruit. That's the way he looked at his life. Am I going to bear fruit? Since Paul's motivation was to glorify Christ in life or death, that led to a dilemma for him. You know, either I'm going to depart and be with Christ, who I want to be with, or I'm going to remain in the flesh and encourage the church in Philippi. He says he was hard-pressed, which means he was hemmed in by two things, and he didn't know which way to go. But Paul's love for Christ was motivating him to want to depart and be with him. His love for his brothers and sisters in Christ motivated him to desire to stay. Um, it, one, one commentator I read said, Every Christian ought to feel the strain of desiring to be with Christ, yet also longing to build his church. That should be in all of us looking to do that. So remaining in the flesh is what the Philippians needed. And if their prayers are answered by him being released, Paul wanted it to lead to boasting in Christ, not in him. That's, that's the way he looked at it. So verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Um, Paul wanted to encourage, their, um, encourage them to have conduct worthy of the gospel. And that makes me think, what is conduct worthy of the gospel? What does that look like? So Paul lays out a few things that were crucial for the gospel to spread. Standing fast in one spirit, one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and not allowing fear of their adverse adversaries to hinder them. And he, he talked about this in Ephesians 2. He gave a little bit. He says, uh, Ephesians 4, beginning of that, I won't have you turn there. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So basically conduct that is worthy of the gospel is a spirit-filled life. A spirit-filled life will be confident in the face of persecution. And when you think about it, this needed to be said because the trials, when trials come into our lives, that's the time when we struggle to walk worthy of the gospel. That, that seems to be the time when we're really struggling because we forget God's faithfulness, we focus on our situation, and we need to remember we're not on our own. Those are the things that end up happening. Our, our minds tend to focus on ourselves. And verse 29 is just beautiful example of the grace that God shows. He, Paul says, God granted them two gifts. The gift of faith. We all love that. That's great. Also, the gift of suffering for the cause of Christ. Um, we tend to shy away from that one. So it's a different perspective on suffering, but it's Christ's perspective. Jesus said, you're going to be hated by all on account of my name. But Paul was intimately acquainted with this perspective. He knew 
God was in control. He was suffering. Therefore, God allowed and ordained that for him. That was what was going to happen in his life. You know, will we trust the wisdom of God in the midst of even our suffering, in the midst of what we may run into, knowing that it's all conforming us into the image of his son? Like, this is what's going on. Will God grant that? Remembering that Christ is the good shepherd. Um, you know, one commentator said this about suffering. He says, everyone cannot be trusted with suffering. All could not stand the fiery ordeal. They would speak rashly and complainingly. So the master has to select with careful scrutiny the branches which can stand the knife. Are we able to withstand the knife when, when God is bringing persecution into our lives? So um, it turns out the Philippians were struggling as well. They were having a con the same conflict Paul was having. We see it here at the end of verse 30. And um, they were, Paul wanted them to be able to remain strong even in the midst of the hardship. So you know, we're, we're living in times right now where there's great adversity to the gospel. And, and what can we go out? God, you know, has worked mightily through people in, in Scripture. We see Paul, when you submit to the will of the Lord, there's been many people submitting to God. Paul wasn't superhuman. I think we need to understand that. He was just a man who had trusted the Lord. He knew what God was doing, and he, he, he just trusted that wherever the Lord was going to lead him, he was going to take care of him. You know, he loved the people in Philippi, um, and we're in a spiritual battle today, just like just like they are, uh, they were at that time. So I think one of the things we should pray about is just that the Holy Spirit would strengthen us to go out as we go out this week and look to endure and stand boldly for the Lord and uh, to live so that we can think on how what it means to live is Christ. If, if God's given you breath, live so that Christ might be magnified in your life. So let's pray. Lord, I just uh, thank you so much for this evening, and um, I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you for the testimony of, of Paul. I thank you for the church in Philippi, Lord, just for the work that you had done in them, and just the encouragement we see from a life that is turned over to you, just trusting that you are, uh, that the work that you begin in our lives, you're going to bring to completion, Lord. I pray that you'll just strengthen us. Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit to go out and glorify you, magnify you to those around us, Lord. We have the message of salvation that needs to be told, and people are hurting out there, Lord. And I just pray, God, that you will give us strength and boldness to proclaim it. So we thank you, God, for this night. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.